every Sunday uh, as sinners saved by grace to sing about this grace that we received in Jesus Christ. Uh, we also worship Jesus in our hearts by overflowing that into, into giving. You know that we give in the uh, silver boxes that are screwed on, on the wall back there. Uh, thank you for your generosity for those that have chosen to give to this church. Um, and uh, the way that we're about to worship now is over his word. Uh, so we've been going through as a church the gospel of Luke um, just to look at Jesus Christ and to see his, his greatness and to see his, his kindness and his compassion and how he, he is kind towards humble sinners and he is hostile and he is aggressive towards self-righteous uh, Pharisees. And he wants all people to repent and believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins so they can have free access to God forever and enjoy him. Uh, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 13 today, verses 18 through 21. So if you want to uh, turn there, and then I'm going to pray right before we begin. I'm sorry, uh, Pastor Mike, I didn't say anything. So uh, Pastor Mike is not here with us today because he is doing a wedding uh, in Minnesota. I think it's, uh, is it Dan Ouse? Is that right? Is that correct? Uh, he he is what used to be one of the uh, members here, and he's going to be moving to Minnesota. And uh, Pastor Mike's doing his wedding, so please pray for him as he is there doing that. Um, and uh, so Luke 13, verses 18 through 21. Luke 13, 18 through 21. And before I read it, I'm just going to ask God for help because uh, I significantly need God's help. So if you would just bow your heads, please. Father, we thank you so much that there is none holy like you. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. We thank you for giving us your son as the great eternal rock, the everlasting rock that we can trust and be firm on. Lord, I ask, I plead that you would make my heart be filled and overflow with a pleasant theme so that I could address my king and address these fellow needy sinners just like me. And that you would make my tongue like the pen of a ready scribe. Father, make my heart Burn with love for your son, Jesus. I pray for hearts here today that may be hollow or empty or cold or indifferent or hard, or bitter, hostile, depressed. It's incredible, Lord, that you use a short, insignificant person like me to declare your word in hopes that it would sink into these hearts and give them Jesus. Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would make him look great today. Take me away from the picture. I'm here to preach your word, and I ask these things in Jesus' mighty Sovereign, precious name. Amen. Luke 13, 18 through 21. 
no face mic today. That's why I'm holding this. It's locked away in Mike's office, and we didn't have a key, so we're going to have to make it work. Verse 18. He, that's Jesus, said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Uh, Jesus is obviously, clearly he's giving us a parable um, to help us understand what the kingdom of God is like. Right? If you look at the verse, uh, beginning of verse 18, it says, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? Beginning of verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Okay, he's, he's giving us a parable, and it's interesting. He doesn't just give us one parable, but he gives us two. So what this means is we should put these two parables side by side and ask the question, what are the similarities between these parables and whatever they are, that's what Jesus wants us to see and know about the kingdom of God, okay? So it's going to be pretty, pretty simple today. Uh, I see three big things that Jesus wants us to know and enjoy. We don't just know things in the Bible. We have to enjoy them. That's how they are honored. Three things that, he, that Jesus wants us to know and enjoy about the kingdom of God. And then big question at the end, I want to ask, us, ask, you, ask us, what is the reason that Jesus is telling us these parables, why is he telling us these parables here? And there's a lot bigger reason than you may think. So first, it starts small. First thing that Jesus wants you and I to see and to enjoy and praise him for is that his kingdom of God starts small. We know that because of all the things that Jesus could have compared the kingdom of God to, he chose two extremely small things, a mustard seed and leaven, or yeast, if you will, okay? But also in Matthew 13, verse 32, Jesus makes the same mustard seed comparison. And get this, he adds a tiny little detail that he doesn't say here in Luke chapter 13. He adds this detail. It is the smallest of all seeds. You see, that the case is being made that Jesus wants us to know that the kingdom of God starts small. Also, one more reason we know that he wants us to know that it starts small is that Luke 17, 20, verse 20, 20 through 21, Jesus describes the kingdom as small enough to where we can actually miss it. The Pharisees are saying, hey, when's the kingdom of God going to come, Jesus? So they're looking for it. People were actually expecting it. Hyper-religious people who believed they loved God and knew a lot about God. We're looking for the kingdom of God, and this is what Jesus says. It's not going to be up here, so just listen. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they, they are those who are looking for it, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. And then he gives a reason or an argument. For, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So Jesus' argument for the kingdom of God starting small is that even hyper-religious people who are looking for it can't notice it. 
They miss it. It goes right under their radar. And you know something is small and hard to see when it is right under your nose and you miss it. Some of you may go your entire lives and you miss the kingdom of God. I'm preaching the kingdom of God to you now. The kingdom of God is being presented in his son, Jesus Christ. It's here. It's here. And and you're thinking, what? I don't even see. And it's going to go right under your radar. What can we conclude from this? The fact that the kingdom of God begins and starts small. This. The God of the universe, the one who made the galaxies, the stars, the whole universe that is ever expanding, apparently, and your brains. His glory and his majesty would outshine the brightness of 10,000 stars. But when Jesus Christ, the king of this kingdom, brings his reign to earth, he does not come in as rulers and authorities and leaders do today. In what I would call predictable pomp. Predictable, boring pomp. You guys know what pomp is? Showmanship, arrogance, pride. Look at me, look at me. And I get this from the Bible. I was doing my morning devotionals last week. Came across Acts chapter 25, verses 22 to 23, talking about King Agrippa. He wants to see the great apostle Paul in the, in the Roman court. And here's what it says. So on the next day, King Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and all the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And I remember reading, reading that and just thinking, that is so predictable. How boring could you possibly be? You have this greatness about you, and you make sure to know, let other people know about that greatness that you have. It's when greatness goes low that shocks us. That makes us what? We've been watching the Olympics for the past week or so, and it reminds me of the contrast between Usain Bolt and David Budaya. Usain Bolt, I'm so, I realize he's a fast guy, but how boring could you possibly be? That's so, pre- I'm sorry, that's so predictable. So what? Yeah, you, that's really amazing. You're fast, but like to do this, that is so predictable. That's so boring. Shock the world or something. Anybody would think, I'm great, therefore, let me show, that's so predictable, so boring. And then David Budaya, the synchronized diver, wins the silver gold medal. Excuse me, silver gold. Silver medal. Only a few of you caught that. I'm happy about that. Wins the silver gold, silver gold, so, wow. <laughs> Moving on. Wins the silver medal, and he's interviewed. He's on the TV. And, and they, they were like, how did you do this? How did you manage to win the silver medal? And he said, because I realized my identity is not on that platform. My identity is not there, so I don't care if I get it. I don't care. And he said, my identity is in Christ. 
the world is watching and they're going, what? What are you talking about? So, you get the point. Predictable pump. But the God of the Bible does this on a much greater level. His glory punifies the pomp of Agrippa, and he enters the world by being born of an insignificant, ordinary, young virgin. He announces it to two-bit nobody shepherds. He dies on a cross, and he's saving people today through an ancient book. Is that not the glory of our God, though? This is the glory of our God, that he's infinite in glory and majesty, yet desires to enter in small, insignificant, humble, and lowly ways. John Piper, I don't, I mean, I don't know what you think about him, but who cares about him? I just really like what he, he describes this as the peculiar glory of God. That he is majestic yet meek. He transcends the universe, yet he condescends to miserable sinners like you and me. That's the shocking, strange, peculiar, intriguing glory of our God. And Revelation 5, it kind of captures this peculiar, majestic, yet meek, meek glory of God. In Revelation 5, it talks about the writer, the Apostle John. He sees a vision of Jesus Christ who is referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Majestic, strong, powerful, scary lion. But when he turns to look, it says this, he saw a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus is a majestic and mighty lion, but when you see him, when he's revealed, he presents himself as a meek and mangled lamb. Part of the glory of the kingdom of God is that it magnifies its majesty through meekness. So let's apply this. Here's some questions. If this is true, here's some questions to to, um, examine yourself in light of this truth that the kingdom of God starts small. Is this your view of God? Although great and mighty, yet works in small and ordinary ways. How do you expect him to work in your life? Ordinarily or extraordinarily? If this spectacular miracle never comes, are you okay with that? Is your view of God one who sometimes says no to the spectacular miracle so that he can stumble alongside of you through the mundane pain of everyday, day-to-day suffering? Yes and amen, God can and he does do the spectacular miracle. In the first year of my wife and I's marriage, I, I was a waiter for about seven, eight months just trying to get by. And I worked with this, this young uh, woman who was a single, uh, single mom, and she uh, used to be addicted to, to meth and heroin. Uh, and she became a Christian by hearing about Jesus and she just kept praying over and over. Take away these desires. Take away these desires. Take away these desires. And in a single day, they were stripped. And she, rather than relishes the needle, she relishes the nail that Jesus took for her. He can do that. He does do that. But ordinarily, 
God works in your life in the eight to five, wake up again, eat breakfast, continue to go, come home, change diapers, make dinner, wake up at 2 a.m., try to put the baby back down. God works in ordinary, mundane ways to chisel into his children a future glory that cannot be seen now but will be revealed someday. Does your life feel insignificant and humdrum? If so, are you bothered by that? Why? What makes you think that your life is any different than the way Jesus' was? He was the Son of God, yet walked the path of humble and painful obedience. So the question is, are you an adopted spiritual son or daughter of God? Then why wouldn't that truth give you the contentment and confidence to walk a life of humble, ordinary obedience like Jesus did? Maybe you have a tendency to live extravagantly. Do you live in a way that images and mirrors the pomposity of King Agrippa or the humility of King Jesus? Does your life reflect a heart that longs to be praised or a heart that longs for Jesus to be praised? School's about to start, so college students, this is a serious question. What are you majoring in? Why? Majoring that, is that going to take you to the path of extravagant pomposity? Is that what God really wants you to do? I know that I chose my major based upon the extravagant pomposity that it would one day give me. And if you don't examine yourself now, you're going to end up wasting your years at college. To you unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever in here, you're not a Christian. Do you say, I would believe in God if he would just show himself? In what way are you expecting him to show himself to you? Through great and spectacular showmanship? If that's what you're expecting, you most likely will not get that because that's not how God ordinarily works. He has spoken clearly in his word and he has revealed his divine power and glory through everything he has made. Therefore, you have no excuse. He has already shown himself. So the kingdom of God starts small. And although it starts small, the second thing, it grows until it takes over. It grows until it takes over. If you notice in the parable, it says in verse 21, at the end of verse 21, you can look it up here. It says that the woman took the leaven, the woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. It took over the whole lump. The mustard seed is not obvious, though, because if you look in the middle of verse 19, it just says it became a tree. It doesn't really give any hint that it kind of took over. It just says it became a tree. But, praise God, in Mark 4, 32, same parable, it adds this detail. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. So the kingdom of God, like a mustard seed, takes over the garden 
and like leaven takes over the whole lump of flour. This is a picture of the inevitable triumph of the kingdom of God. And this is interesting. We can learn something from the growth of the yeast. I looked up something, I did some research on YouTube, and let me tell you, YouTube is always right. Um, You know, it was one of those nice videos. So, like, when they're well done, you think, oh, well, then it must be done by really smart people or something. So I, um, I just looked up how, how yeast works. It's a fungus that eats sugar, and then it spits out CO2 as waste, which is why the lump rises. You've got to punch it, you know? And immediately, I thought, that's how the kingdom of God overcomes. Just as the kingdom... Excuse me. Just as the yeast eats sugar and spits out CO2, resulting in a lump of dough, so the kingdom of God eats sin in your heart and spits out repentance, resulting in a new life in Christ and entrance into the kingdom of God. Mark 1.15. The time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. One of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Brooks, wrote a famous book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. You should read it. He, one of his most famous quotes is this. Repentance is the vomit of the soul. A Christian is just someone who God gives a spiritual gag reflex. Some of you have no spiritual gag reflex. You just eat sin and gorge on it, not knowing that you are storing up wrath until the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And this is exactly how the kingdom of God reigns in the world today, by overcoming the fleeting pleasures of sin in your heart and drawing you into the eternal pleasures of the kingdom of God. So it looks like this. Your soul was feasting upon sin one day until one day the eyes of your heart become captivated by the value and eternal feast of pleasure in the presence of Christ who's the king of this kingdom. And although infinite and honor, and glory, and he is robed in infinite majesty and righteousness. You see him nailed to a cross, yet he's not wearing his robes of righteousness. What he's wearing is the robes of your filthy sin. And he bears the full punishment for the sin you have been gorging upon your whole life. And then he's put in a grave Three days later, rises again, and he offers you forgiveness of sins. And when you trust in him, you find yourself no longer having the filthy rags of sin, but the very righteous robes that he has. And you have free freedom to enjoy glorifying and making much of God for eternity. And when you see this king who took your sin upon himself, it causes your soul to shudder in horror 
at the cesspool of iniquity you have been binging on your whole life. And as Thomas Brooks says, your soul then, as it were, vomits out sorrow, remorse, confession, turning from sin, and trusting in King Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. The best illustration of this about the kingdom of Ma- is Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. When you see the worth of a Savior far outweighs everything on this planet, you will happily forsake it all for him. And that forsaking is a form of soul vomit. And if, if right now you're kind of going, ooh, that's kind of a gross soul vomit, that's the point. You shouldn't say, ooh, that's gross. You should say, ooh, my sin is gross. That should be the response. This is how the kingdom of God takes over. It's like a plant, like a growing plant, and like yeast, takes over, reigns, and rules today by overcoming the deceitful and fleeting pleasures of sin with the delightful, enduring pleasures of the kingdom of Christ. And the glorious grace of Christ will continue to shine and overcome the deceitful reign of sin in the hearts of men. It will reign. It will reign. Christ's grace, the grace of this king, can, does, and will reign over every form of sin in the heart of man. I don't know if you're one of these people. I have met them before. They say, you don't know what I have done. One of my friends in high school, one of the reasons he would not become a Christian is he said, I've done just the most horrid things. What I want to say to people like that is, who do you think you are telling the king of grace that his cross and his blood is not powerful enough to overcome your sin? Who do you think you are? If that is you, I would tell you, repent of that. His cross is mighty enough. So just as the kingdom of God naturally grows, here's some questions. Just as the kingdom of God naturally grows, so the citizens of the kingdom will naturally grow. Are you growing in your hope of the kingdom of God? Do you even think about the kingdom of God? When was the last time you longed for the coming of God's kingdom? Are you growing in your desire to let go of earthly treasures for the sake of gaining the treasure of the kingdom of God? Are you growing in your contentment, being content with what you have? If the kingdom, listen, if the kingdom of God is already within you, then why are you so content since all that you need is found in the eternal riches of the kingdom of God? One of the most precious moments of, of my battle with contentment. I was reading another Puritan book by a um, guy named Jeremiah Burroughs. wrote a book called Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, another book that I would recommend. And he's talking about what is the key to contentment? He just, how do, what is contentment and how do you have it? Here's what he says. 
A gracious heart has so much of God within himself that he has enough there to make up all his outward wants. He has a bird within his bosom which makes him melody enough though he lacks music. The kingdom of heaven is within you. He has a kingdom within him, a kingdom of God. I remember reading this. It was one of those moments you're reading something and it kind of catches you off guard and you just go, oh. And you just get crushed. But then Christ lifts you up and you, you worship him all the more. The kingdom of God is within you. Why are you so discontent? Why are you always looking for more? Because if you've repented and trusted in Christ, the kingdom of God is within you and far outweighs all that you are longing for here. Let's move on. So the kingdom of God, it starts small. Although it's small, it grows until it takes over. Thirdly, it provides safety and satisfaction. I get safety from the last part of verse 19. If you look at the very end of verse 19, it says, the birds of the air made nests in its branches. In Mark 4, 32, the same parable, he even adds this little detail. He said, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Why would you want to get in shade? To be safe from the heat. So while the kingdom of God is already here and reigning now in our hearts, it will eventually fully and completely be here when Christ returns to bring heaven to earth and banish the kingdom of darkness completely. And then also all those who were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ were brought into an eternal heavenly home. You'll be safe forever. Be safe forever. I debated whether I should say this, but a couple weeks ago, my wife and I were just on the internet and came across this story about um, a family who's our age, and they have three kids, and they were going to finish their last steps of becoming missionaries and, and going to serve another country. And in a construction zone in Nebraska, a semi-truck rear-ends them and takes out the whole family. Mom and dad were 28. Three kids, 29. I'm, we're 31. That leveled us. Leveled us. With our daughters just sitting right there. And let me tell you, the strangest thing, the strangest emotion happened in my heart. I felt safe. Because I knew that by being in this kingdom, Ultimately, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea. No matter what happens, I, no matter what happens to you or what is happening to you, in this kingdom, you're safe. 
Jesus, like a man preparing a honeymoon suite for his bride in John 14, verses 1 through 3, said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, just because we have a safe home doesn't mean that we will enjoy it. And this is why I say it also, not just safety, it also provides satisfaction. And I get satisfaction from the very fact that Jesus uses a lump of dough, which provides bread to satisfy hunger. According to the ESV study Bible, it says that three measures of flour would have produced enough bread to feed 100 people. In some measure, we are satisfied now, but when the kingdom of God fully comes, satisfaction will be the enduring theme. Just sit back and listen to this. I just kind of, this is an overflow of my enjoyment of the satisfaction of the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God comes, all complexity, jealousy, and lack of generosity will be resolved. All funerals and hospitals will be shut down. All disability, hostility, and racial animosity will be an impossibility. All disappointment, discouragement, and discontentment will have no appointment. God's justice will be satisfied and God's love will be ratified. Tears, fears, and deaf ears will be undone. But most of all, every craving of your heart will be satiated at the sight of your Savior. When you behold Christ in his kingdom, endless outlets of exquisite pleasure you cannot measure will be your everlasting treasure. This is what the kingdom of God promises you, not only safety, but eternal satisfaction. And this will be the final triumph of the kingdom of God. All his children gather together in his house and the bride of Christ eternally happy and is an affectionate embrace. I think Psalm 63 verses five through seven really summarizes this well. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is the internal experience, the internal experience of one who has entrance and access to the kingdom of God. Now lastly, and here's where we're going to end. Why is Jesus telling us these parables? What's the, why is he telling, of all places, why is he telling us these parables here? The reason why I'm asking that question, if look at the first three words of verse 18. First three words of verse 18. He said, therefore. Jesus said, therefore, and then he tells the parables. You know why we use the word therefore, right? To state a conclusion, to state an implication. So whatever comes before the word therefore is the reason or the cause of what comes next. And Jesus said, therefore. And then he told us these parables. 
So there's something about what, what happened before these parables are being told that caused Jesus to say them. If you're still confused about what the word therefore, how we use it, I use this, and I'm using Pastor Mike as an example. He's not here, so it's okay. Therefore is the opposite of because. So for example, Mike Reed preaches because he is the pastor. Him being the pastor causes him to be the preacher. But if you were to say that backwards, you would say, Mike Reed is the pastor, therefore he preaches. The cause of him being preached comes before. So we have to look at what happens before in order to understand what is happening, why he's telling us this. Look at verse 17. It should be up on the screen. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. This verse right here is the outcome of Jesus. He is, he's challenging people who were uh, questioning why he healed this woman who was bent over because of a disability caused by Satan. He calls them out for their hypocrisy. And when Jesus saw that all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at his glory, that caused him to give us a picture of the triumph of the kingdom of God. So let's figure this out. Look at verse 17. There's two things in there that I think are important. Number one, adversaries are put to shame. And number two, people rejoice at his glorious work. So what is it, first, about the adversaries being put to shame? Here's how I put it. The kingdom of God will triumph in the end by putting to shame those who would oppose Jesus Christ. One outcome of the triumph of the kingdom is that the enemies of God are put to shame, but that's not all. The second side of the reason why Jesus told these parables about the inevitable triumph of the kingdom is that all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. What were the glorious things? A woman was released from the captivity of Satan to make much of Jesus. And when Jesus sees this, he views that as a reason to tell us these parables, to give us a picture of the inevitable triumph of the kingdom of God. The other way the kingdom of God triumphs is by freeing sinners from the power of Satan to rejoice at his glorious works for all eternity. Acts 26, verse 18 describes this well. Jesus tells Paul that he's going to send him to the Gentiles. It says, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. But really, they're the same end. The rejoicing, excuse me, the shaming of God's enemies it will be the cause of our rejoicing in Jesus Christ for all eternity. Here's a couple more verses to describe this. 1 Samuel 2.10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
Revelation 18, 20 through 21. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you his saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. The great triumph of the kingdom of God is that on the outside, sin will be destroyed, Satan and all who join him in opposition will be damned, suffering will be diminished, death will die. But on the inside, the redeemed will rejoice in God's glory. God's kingdom will radiate in beauty. The victory of grace will reign. The honor and glory of King Jesus will exalt forever and ever. And so now we just, we just wait. We wait for this time to come. We wait, we pray, we hope, we long for. We wait patiently for King Jesus to do this. We do not take matters into our own hands. He himself will take care of it all. Let's ask God to help us to do that. Father, I thank you so much for these parables and these beautiful truths that Christ's kingdom will reign. It will triumph. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to have hearts that enjoy these truths rightfully with great joy. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.